Good evening. Good afternoon. Hello. Hey. We are. Hey. Hey. We are back together on a Wednesday night, and we are going to be talking about spiritual warfare. So this is one of those subjects that, to be honest with you, I don't like teaching. All right. And you might think, well, that's strange coming from somebody who loves to teach the Bible. I love to teach the Bible, but the type of things that we're going to discuss you know, the deal with the devil and demon possession and stuff like that. I don't like talking about those things. Um, I generally like talking about heaven and salvation and Jesus coming back. All right, I don't like talking about the darker side of the spiritual world that exists. However, as we are, in my opinion, getting closer to the return of Christ, I think we're seeing an increase in spiritual darkness around us. I see trends in our culture, uh, the occult. And Satanism, uh, I see it especially among young people. And so I also see a lot of pushback from Christians. You know, there are a lot of Christians that are getting super charismatic. People who maybe grew up in non-charismatic churches are very attracted to the charismatic movement mm. because they think that it, I don't know, it gives them a vibrant faith and a way to repel the darkness that they perceive growing around them. Um, and I can't fault them for that, but we're going to look at the theology behind spiritual warfare and it's going to probably take tonight and, and another night for us to get through all this. But the title of this series, if you will, is The Devil, His Origin and Defeat. We're going to talk about whether or not the devil is a real person. And by the way, before you even listen to anything else, yes, he is. Okay, so the devil is real. We're going to talk about where it is in the Bible that he fell. Now, if I was to ask anybody in this room, who is the devil? You'd say, all right, well, he was a fallen angel. So originally he was created by God good, and he rebelled against God, tried to be God. God cast them down from heaven, and now he is seeking whom he may devour on earth. You are 100% correct in that assessment. However, where do we find certain ideas? The devil tried to take over God's throne. The devil has a third of the angels who followed him in his rebellion. These ideas that we often refer to in conversation, where are they in the Bible? They're there. So we're going to look at them and we're also going to look at how some people downplay these things. When I was in college, uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are two passages we're going to look at. And I remember in my prophets class, I had it on a Thursday night and it was like a two hour long class and I had it once a week. I was tired. I'd just eaten dinner and honestly, I wasn't ready to be discussing deep topics like prophecy, but one of the biggest memories of my college experience was in that class because I had this professor who gave us this textbook. He expected us to, to know it and to study it. And I, I'm usually excited about reading new books. But as I read this book, I was kind of shocked that when it came to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he denied that the devil was the subject of these passages that we're going to look at. While my entire life, and historically, by the way, the church has traditionally understood these passages as referring to the devil. The passage that talks about Lucifer, it refers to Lucifer. It refers to the devil. And he said that it didn't. And I was like, what? What kind of Baptist prophecy class am I sitting in? And I was shocked. But what I was even more shocked to find, it wasn't just him. It was a lot of evangelicals. While they acknowledge the existence of Satan, a lot of the passages in the Old Testament that give us clear information about his fall, they have dismissed these passages as pertaining to him, to this person, the devil and his fall. And it's like, wait a second, you're taking a lot of force 
out of the biblical presentation regarding this very important individual. And so where do they get this from? I would argue that this is another example of compromise among evangelicals. Uh, a lot of the higher critical thought um, has seeped into the church. Let's look at the Bible and look at it in light of Near Eastern thought, Near Eastern ideas. And they would look at these passages and say, oh, well, this is talking about a person who is presented in Babylonian mythological language and yada, yada, yada. And so for a Christian who takes the word of God seriously, these are, in my opinion, very threatening ideas. Uh, most people in church probably don't believe them, but since seminaries teach them, we got to be on our guard because there will be people who come into churches and, um, you know, on, on first look, you think, oh, this person's sound in their beliefs, but they're learning things in school that aren't accurate and in fact, may be quite damaging. Um, and so anyways, we're going to look at some of this stuff tonight and then we'll wrap it up next time. So let's look first at Isaiah 14. So we're going to be there and we're going to look at chapter 14, verse number 12. That's what I have here on my notes. We might actually go back and read a little bit more, but Isaiah 14. Okay. Let's see. Yeah. We'll start in verse 12 and we'll read to verse number 15. Okay. So it says, how art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So, <coughs> Excuse me. This passage is famous because it mentions by name somebody called Lucifer. And if you have the King James or you have New King James or I think the MEV also, does it have Lucifer, yeah. Scott? Okay. So it has Lucifer. Has so, son of dawn. Yes. Oh, Daystar, son of dawn. So is that the ESV? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of modern versions will translate this term differently and it takes a little bit of the oomph out of the passage because generally when people read this, they see Lucifer and what do they think it's talking about? It's talking about Lucifer. Okay. So, um, we see a change in a lot of Bible translations and this is a symptom of that higher critical thought that I just mentioned. You know, when, whenever you have people who are abandoning traditional interpretation without a good reason, they end up having those ideas influence further Bible translation. And so since 1611, when the Bible was uh, most popularly translated in English, I mean, before many other translations have been made, but obviously the King, King James surpassed all of the ones that came before and it became the norm. Um, from 1611 to the late 1800s, everybody, when they were reading their Bible, would say, Lucifer, if this is talking about Satan, this is talking about his fall. It's pretty obvious. I mean, it says Lucifer has fallen from heaven. It says in verse number 13 that he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. In fact, I'm reading right now a book by Hal Lindsey, and uh, he calls these um, the, the, the I wills, the infamous I wills. 
And so here we have a really good description of Satan's pride um, to exalt himself above God. So where did they get this idea that we should translate the Hebrew term, which is Halel, we should translate that instead as Daystar. Okay, so literally the term Lucifer, it's Latin and it means a light bearer, okay? But if we're talking about the original language, which is Hebrew here, it's Halel and it's derived from a verb which means to shine. So shining one in Hebrew, literally, and in, Lu in uh, Latin, Lucifer is light bearer, okay? Or as I've seen many sources note, it could be just as easily rendered as shining one. So Lucifer actually is a very good translation of the original term. The reason there's controversy because Lucifer is a proper noun here. So it's referring to the devil either as a title or as a name. I, I think that honestly, Lucifer was probably not the devil's name before he fell from heaven. Uh, when we look at angels in the Bible, you have like Gabriel and Michael. And while we don't have a lot of angelic names, there is one commonality between Gabriel and Michael. It's L on the end, the name of God. So um, and if you look at tradition outside the Bible, you got Raphael and Uriel. So you have a lot of these angelic names that have L on the end. So to me, this is speculation on my part. I'll admit that. But to me, it would seem more likely that if the devil's name was given in the Bible, it would probably have L on the end, just like these other famous angels that have not fallen, who are still obedient in heaven. So Lucifer appears to be a title. And it's a title that expresses his beauty, okay? So we don't deny that Lucifer does bring to our minds this picture of a pre-fallen, beautiful being that was created by God with a good purpose, and yet this person was built up in their own uh, self-conceit, uh, arrogant uh, instead of you know wise in the eyes of God, and instead of giving glory to God, they were puffed up in their own sense of glory. So, so Lucifer as a title for Satan before he fell, I think that that fits the context. Uh, but let's look a little bit deeper. So in the LXX, which is another way of referring to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was made, it's kind of hard to determine this. The first five books of the Old Testament were definitely translated in Greek a couple hundred years before Christ. Uh, the rest of them were made over an extended period. And so we don't know, honestly, uh, when this was first put down in Greek. But the Greek translation of this is, and I'm going to try my best to pronounce this, it's Hyosphorus. Uh, okay. And an equivalent term is phosphorus. Okay. So y'all know what phosphorus is. Okay. Uh, combustible. All right. So Hyosphorus um, literally means. Uh, morning star, okay, or or dawn bringer, and it refers to the planet Venus. But yes, what's your question? So, so Scott? Day star, morning star, day star. There, there's a, I forget who, there's a channel, right? Um, in the, uh, what is it, the TV, day star television. So, uh, it always made me wonder why they would call themselves day star when clearly day star generally points to Yes. So let, let's, uh, we're going to look at some verses in the new Testament because Jesus is referred to as day star right. in second Peter one nineteen, and in revelation, he is called twice morning star. So there is definitely a connection here. Now, okay. 
Now, the, the connection is really cool. And I'm going to read to you a quote by Henry Morris that I think summarizes better than I could ever put it. But we'll get there in a minute. So at first, we just need to know that the original term is adequately uh, rendered by Lucifer. And the reason we should retain it as with a capital L as a proper noun is because we are referring to a person. Now, if you take away that, then you take away this deep connection between this passage and everything we have in the New Testament about Satan. In, in Luke, for example, um, I got the reference here somewhere. Luke 10, 18, uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And uh, in Revelation, there are other references to Satan as a fallen star. And many commentators will confess that it appears that these references in the New Testament are referring back to Isaiah 14, when it says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? So the, the connection here is something that I don't think that anybody with their eyes open can deny. And so if we're talking about Satan, we're not talking about some uh, human being. No doubt uh, when you read this, there are people in mind. Um, in fact, I got some notes here which argue that uh, we have some end times characters in mind. In fact, they think that uh, from verse 9 to 11, we're talking about the Antichrist. And then when you get to verse 12 through uh, 17, you're talking about the person who empowers the Antichrist. So we're not going to get into all the end times significance here. But the idea is often in the Bible, and we'll see this especially in Ezekiel, often in the Bible, there is a person presented that's human. But behind that person, there is another power. There is another person. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you talk about the book of Daniel and it mentions the prince of Persia, all right, the prince of Persia is clearly referring to a demonic being. However, this demonic being is in Persia for what reason? To influence the leader there. And so we, we have here in Isaiah and Ezekiel real people, but behind them, there are these powers of darkness that are manipulating things. And so what is really being referred to here? Well, it says he's fallen from heaven. That's not referring to any human being. Okay. And, and no human being has ever tried to ascend into heaven to where the stars of God are and overtake the throne of God on his heavenly mountain. No one's ever tried to do that. No one ever could possibly do that. This is definitely talking about an angelic being. And so the fact that this is an angelic being, he's connected to Satan in the new Testament the, the term Lucifer, it should stay in our Bibles. Um, another thing to consider is we know how Lucifer is used by the occult. Right. And so the occult often uses Lucifer to refer to Satan. Yeah. However, they present Satan in positive terms. Yes. Okay. It's called Luciferianism for a reason. Yeah. So to take Lucifer out of the Bible, I think even if one could make an argument purely from a, like a language perspective, a linguistic perspective, yeah. It's a bad idea considering how the term is used by both Christians and by people who are anti-Christian. Christians, when they hear the term Lucifer, they know it's talking about Satan mm -hmm. because the passage refers to Satan. And Luciferians, they refer to Satan with the exact same term. So, so to take Lucifer out of the Bible is very confusing to people who are looking for in the Bible references to Lucifer to Satan, and they wouldn't find it. Because rather it's rendered something completely different, whether it's Dawnbringer or Daystar or Morningstar, um, none of those are going to cement that connection 
to this person called Satan, like the traditional translation does. And so there is a rich usage among Christians of Lucifer, uh, Lucifer for Satan. Uh, and that's because of this passage. But let's look at some passages in the New Testament. Okay, so you mentioned Daystar, Second uh, Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1. And like I said, Henry Morris has got a really good statement. I got it on my phone somewhere. I took a picture of it. But uh, 2 Peter 1, 19, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts. That... 2 Peter 1.19. So it says the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. The day dawning is no doubt a reference to the rapture, which practically dawns in the heart of the believer when we believe in prophecy. You know, we experience truly in a spiritual, emotional rapture when we dwell upon the second coming. You know, it's like it's so close you can taste it. When you read these prophecies and you study the book of Revelation, I feel like the Lord's just right there. Okay, and the clouds are just shut up, and but he's right behind him, you know? And that's, I think, what uh, Peter's talking about here, the rapture of delight that Christians experience when we dwell upon that future day of the Lord's return. But it says the day star arise in your hearts. That's no doubt a reference to Jesus. So in the Greek, this is phosphorus, and uh, day star, morning star are both perfect translations of it, whichever one you choose. So we have Jesus referred to as day star. Okay, and many people argue that that's what Halel means. It means day star. So why is Jesus and the devil called the same thing? Okay, well, we're going to get to that because it's a really important consideration. But in Luke, or sorry, not Luke, um, Revelation 2, 28, Jesus speaking says, I will give him the morning star, which is a gift to overcomers. We will get to overcomer passages in Revelation. Okay, we're about to jump into our verse by verse study of Revelation. I keep saying that we're just taking our time talking about some broader concepts, but we will get to our verse by verse study of the book. But the overcomer passages, we're not going to look at on Sundays. We're going to do that on a Friday night or a Wednesday night uh, because we're going to pick up on Sundays starting in Revelation 4, you know, where the rapture happens and we go into the future section of the book. But it mentions the morning star. This is probably Christ referring to himself. He's going to give to him, give himself to overcomers in a special way. This is special access, special intimacy. It's a reward that he is going to impart to believers who are not carnal, but rather they are victorious in their faithful living. Um, in Revelation 22:16, we have the other use of the term. Um, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Okay, so Jesus is the morning star. He's the day star. So what do we do with this common usage here? Devil is called the day star, at least via translation, and Jesus is called the day star. So which one is the day star? Well, I think that we can agree that the devil is a usurper. He takes what is not his. So I'm going to read this passage from Henry Morris. This is from his book on uh, modern science or Bible in modern science. He says the brightest object in the heavens, except for the sun and moon is the planet Venus also called both morning star and evening star. So these terms 
were used in ancient Greek to refer to the planet Venus. And that's probably what the Bible is doing when he uses these terms. So continuing the quote from Morris, since it is only the star bright enough to be seen in the daytime, it is also called the day star. This beautiful star is referred to in the scriptures as a symbol of Christ no less than three times. Christ is called the day star in 2 Peter 1.19 and the bright morning star in Revelation 2.28 and 22.16. In each case, the rising of the morning star is evidently taken as a symbol of the return of Christ. Satan, as the great usurper and deceiver, the one who would dethrone Christ and make himself king of the universe, is also symbolized by this star when he is called Lucifer. Isaiah 14.12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? The name Lucifer means day star and is so rendered in some translations. Satan's counterfeit star may seem to be rising in this age, but Christ is the true day star. Satan will eventually prove to be a fallen star, Revelation 9.1, rather than the true rising morning star. And I think that's a beautiful comparison, or rather contrast, that Satan in this age, he's the God of this world, the Bible says, um, the God of this age, and he is, and, and really in the Christian perspective, becoming more and more powerful. Uh, we see that darkness becoming more potent in America. And it may seem, and we can sometimes, I think, get burdened. And I don't want this lesson on spiritual warfare to burden anybody. In fact, I want it to have the opposite effect. But often we're burdened by seeing people in spiritual bondage and people being deceived. Paganism to me is, is a big fear, seeing it grip young people. But as we see this darkness grow, we need to be reminded that the true day star, the one who's truly going to bring light and a golden age, is Jesus. And so the devil, he's trying to bring in his own golden age. Okay, he's trying to bring glory to himself. He's trying to establish his own kingdom in the universe. We know that he was already cast down the first time. Isaiah 14 already talked about that. It says, how art thou fallen? He's already fallen in one sense, but there is going to be a future fall that has not been accomplished yet. And Revelation talks about that. Uh, Revelation 12 is one we'll look at, describing the future fall of Satan. But Christ is the true day star. So I think that in Isaiah 14, when it refers to Lucifer and it calls him a light bearer, in one sense, yes, there was a time where Lucifer was a beautiful angel. And Ezekiel 28, our next passage we'll look at, clearly depicts that. So was he once Lucifer, light bearer, full of wisdom and full of beauty? Indeed he was. But after he rebelled, he still in his mind was beautiful and powerful and wise. And now that term Lucifer is applied to him almost ironically. You think that you're beautiful and wise and powerful? Well, once you were, but now... You're nothing but the prince of darkness. And the prince has a very frail kingdom that will be quickly overturned from God's perspective. So now when we use the term Lucifer for Satan, we need to be thinking of it in an ironic sense. He may think that he's the Lucifer, but he's not really the day star or the morning star. Christ is. Go ahead, Matt. It's almost like his name in and of itself is a contradiction. Yes, yeah. Interestingly what enough. It is because... I think that even today he would regard himself as Lucifer, light bearer, dawn bringer. I'm going to bring in a golden age. I'm going to conquer the world. Um, I think the devil still thinks he can win. A lot of Christians disagree on that and think he's just trying to bring down as many as he can. But um, I genuinely think that based on scripture's depiction of him, he's in denial. He's, he's fighting tooth and nail. 
because he's holding on to the shred of a possibility that he's going to win. Uh, obviously, he's self-deceived, and he will not win, but... And, and right now, he thinks he, he really is going to win. Yeah. He kind of, kind of is in a way. And small victories, right. you know, probably because contribute to that delusion. He's getting more and more popular, and people are thinking that he's really not a bad guy as he's portrayed on television. Yeah, and he probably he probably thinks that, you know, he is worthy of... Of, of all, all of that worship. Yeah. He he certainly thinks he is. Yeah. In the circles that I used to run in, you know, before I was a Christian, Lucifer was always talked about in a very logical way. Like he represented logic. He represented things. Huh. Yeah. When I was, you know, atheist and in that agnostic phase, if you will, it was Lucifer is a, he's a logician. He's logical. He's something that, you know, is intelligent. Huh. And it was almost something that was you almost respected that he was willing to rebel. And that's a dangerous ideology, but it's one that many of my friends held in that circle. Oh, being sympathetic towards Satan is a very common, like a common belief among, obviously uh, not common. It is the belief of Satan is right. But when I say common, I'm thinking it is becoming more popular. Yeah. Uh, among young people who are having these pagan leanings to to think of Satan as a symbol of light. And they like the term Lucifer because it means light bringer. And they think that Lucifer's actually, he's the one who's in the right. So God's the one who's this oppressive tyrant and he's Lucifer. He's illuminating. He's all about freedom from tyranny. My friend that I would have arguments with uh, when I first became a Christian, he was a good friend of mine. He was a staunch atheist. And of course, we're in high school. We we weren't very intelligent, but I I mean, our conversations. He was a self-proclaimed atheist, but he would say, you know, even in your Bible that you now claim to believe in, he's like, Lucifer's the good guy of the story, dude. He's like, he's the one that's trying to show you. He's like, he's trying to get you out of this oppressive, you know, tyrant rule. And I'm like, dude, it you have it wrong. Absolutely. It's the opposite way. I thought maybe no, but. And that's the deception that he's trying to feed the world. Um, and, and he's successfully doing so, yeah. um, sadly. I keep going back to this television show. I had a conversation with a guy yesterday. Um, and he said, oh, have you ever seen this TV show, Lucifer? I'm like, yeah, no, I've never watched it. Oh, why? I said, I'm Christian. So he explained that the premise of, of this TV show was that Lucifer is a good guy. And he's just misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and I'm thinking, man. You're talking about that. Okay, so it's, it's a recent show. It, yeah. Yes, very, and it's, it's very popular. It's very popular. popular. And it's it's like, yeah, the guy's name is Lucifer Morningstar. <coughs> so I used to have uh, youth group kids that would come to me in summer if they were watching the show. And they'd say, well, you know, like, is it wrong? I'm like, well, yeah. I'm yeah, like, yeah. And then they would try and, you know, kind of do the justification in their minds and try and tell me like, well, they portray the angels in a good way. And like, God's portrayed as a, a good guy. And I'm like, but how do they portray Archangel? Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like, well, he's, he's a good guy who sings well. And I'm like, you know, it's right. The person who plays him and I don't, I've never watched the show, but apparently he's very handsome. Yeah. And you know, well, I would expect him to be. Any any he helps people catch criminals, I think, is the premise of the yeah. show. And it's like he does good thing. Well, that's not what he's doing. No, it's like, yeah, absolutely. There is there is this growing sympathy towards him. And listen, guys, if you were to go back to let's say when you know, I'm thinking about Nana. Um, you know, Nana lived in the Greatest Generation, 
And if you were to go back to the, you know, the forties and the fifties, you know, Luciferianism was like, Oh, that's, those are devil worshipers. And you know, that's terrible. Like Luciferianism, Satanism is like the worst thing that you could be. Yeah. in your childhood. And now there is this growing trend that it's a good thing. And even to me, like growing up, obviously, you know, I'm not as, as old, but you know, even back in, you know, my childhood, like I didn't know anybody who, who would actually make a case that the devil was the good guy in the story. Um, there are obviously people who were making it back then, but I'm just saying, I'm noticing it more at the very least, um, in young people that Lucifer paganism, the occult, it's all becoming such a fun faddish thing. And so, um, we need to remember that again, his glory that he may seem to be, you know, getting now from people, it will be eclipsed by Jesus. And that's the wonderful thing. That's the true morning star. Absolutely. And so now let's look, um, at Ezekiel 28. And this is probably as far as we'll get. And that's really as far as I wanted to get tonight. Uh, the next subject is a charged one, man. Uh, the first part to this series is what does the Bible say about the devil? And maybe we'll finish it tonight. But, uh, the next part was going to be what do we do in our struggle against the devil? So what is our role? Do we have an active role or do we have a more passive role? There are different views among Christians as to how to carry out spiritual warfare. And I'm going to make my case that our role as Christians in the church age is more passive. Uh, I, I look at it as a standing, um, a, a standing approach to spiritual warfare rather than a seeking approach. Uh, I I know some people who they have a seeking approach. Let us seek out those who are oppressed and let us target these demons and cast them out. And I see Paul in Ephesians 6 giving us a completely different approach. Put on the armor of God and stand. And from a distance, what do we do to fight the enemy? We cast the spear of prayer. And so we'll talk more about that next time, but um, that just gives you kind of a taste of, you know, where I'm coming from, but I'm going to do my best to look in some passages, especially Matthew 17, where it talks about Jesus telling the disciples that if you have, you know, the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And in the context, he's talking about casting out demons with prayer and fasting. That is a really big text. Uh, and you can't ignore that if you're talking about demonic possession and spiritual warfare. So we're going to talk about that another time, but um, Ezekiel 28, let's look. Let's see. Uh, starting in verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. <coughs> Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, first, before we go any further, this is addressed to the king of Tyre. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to go back a little bit, in verse number two, it mentions the prince of Tyre. So there are different ways that, you know, someone looks at this. Uh, I've heard some people say prince of Tyre is referring to the man. Like the, the person who lived at that time. <coughs> and I've heard other people say that the king of Tyre is the one who is higher in rank and really the main threat. And that would be the devil behind him. Mm-hmm. 
that's very reasonable. That's basically the way that I would look at it. Other people um, would argue that we have, in verse number two, a type of the beast. So we have the Antichrist is typified by this literal prince of Tyre. And then the king of Tyre, they would then say, is the devil who is going to be behind the beast in the end times and empowering him. So there are different takes on this, but I think the main thing that we need to get from it today, and I'm not getting in the end times as much right now, but the main thing we need to take is that when you get to verse number 13, and it says, thou hast been and eaten the garden of God, we are clearly not talking about a human. We're talking about someone else. And so this is where, regardless of how you understand it, the devil is in view. Now I'm about to have a coffin fit. And so can somebody read verse 13 through 15? <coughs> 13 through 15? Yes, please. Right. It says, You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Good. We'll stop right there. We will read verse 16 in a moment, but here's what we need to look at. This is clearly talking about an angelic being. It says the person was a guardian cherub. So if you've ever heard the, the view that the devil was a cherub, this is where you get it from. Now, if you were to compare Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it's admitted. I read um, in the Apologetic Study Bible, they deny that, um, if I'm understanding them correctly, they seem to deny that this is talking about the devil and that it's not really about him. It's, it's more about this person who existed in Ezekiel's day and they're being you know, described in this you know, really um, exaggerated language. That's basically the view that I remember hearing when I was in college that, you know, this is a particular person um, who is described according to pagan mythology. I obviously don't agree with that. But um, the point is, even in that apologetic study Bible, they admit that there seems to be a correlation between Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. They mention in all these different points of description, there are a majority of points that agree when you look at these two passages side by side. The common thing is this person is beautiful, light bearer, um, and they exalt themselves, but yet are cast down. Cast down from what? The mountain of God. So we clearly are talking about the same person here. And if we're talking about Isaiah 14's Lucifer, and we know Lucifer is Satan from its connection to the New Testament, in Luke 10, 18, for example, then Ezekiel 28 must be the devil. It's just the process of elimination, comparing the passages. So, he is in Eden. This is before he sinned. It says that, you know, you were full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden. Every precious stone was thy covering. This is referring to his beauty before he fell. It says, uh, the workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. That's why a lot of people associate the devil with music. It says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain. 
thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. That was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. So clearly everything that was just said right there is pre-fallen Lucifer. So what can we get from this? <coughs> he was in Eden. This is not referring to him tempting Adam and Eve in Eden. Apparently he was in Eden because he was fulfilling the task of God. He was representing God's interest. All the details of his commission, we don't know. But he was in Eden. But he wasn't just exclusively in Eden. It says he was on the mountain of God. Now, many people take that to refer to Eden because there was a mountain in Eden. That's possible. Um, I do believe there was a mountain in Eden. I don't know if this is what's being referred to here when it says the holy mountain of God. It seems to be referring to the same mountain of God in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, it's talking about where the throne of God is. That's in the third heaven. So it appears that here it's talking about how he, he went back and forth. In fact, it says in verse number 14, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now what in the world are the stones of fire? They're probably the planets. It's a perfect way to describe the planets and stars, stones of fire. They look like glimmering jewels in the night sky. And I'm not the only one who came up with this, by the way, there are a number of commentators that believe that's the reference. So this person had transverses the second heaven. They have ascended all the way up to the mountain of God because they were put there. They have access to heaven, but yet they also were in Eden. And so this person is a messenger and that's what an angel is. Someone who, you know, comes down from heaven to represent God's interest on earth and not just any angel, but one of the high ranking angels, because he is a cherub and, and cherubs based on their presentation in Ezekiel one and in revelation, they're very close to the throne of God. Um, they have authority ranked over all the other angels, probably even over the archangels, mm -hmm. which would mean Satan probably had more power and authority than even the archangel Michael did. And so that's what we have here described before he fell. But then iniquity was found in him. Where was the iniquity found in him? Well, it was whenever he decided to tempt Adam and Eve. Um, at some point, he got jealous, I suppose. This is speculation and not just me, but a lot of church fathers believe that he was jealous of man. Um, really, he was jealous of God, as the Bible says. Uh, he wanted God's throne. But you wonder what precipitated that jealousy? It could have been that God made this man from the dust of the earth, far from the exalted glory of an angelic being as himself. And how dare God expect this angel to be under the authority of this man? There's this ancient Jewish story. I don't know if it's true, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. And since dominion was given to Adam, all the angels were expected to bend the knee to Adam, not worship him as God but to acknowledge his authority over them. And according to this story, the devil refused to bend the knee. I don't know if that's true, but again, that does kind of line up with what we read in the Bible. And it goes right along with what the early church fathers believe. So I don't know if they were familiar with this Jewish story, but if they were familiar with it, it seems like they believe the same idea. But at some point he tries to get people on his side. Um, and I've always wondered, is this before or is this after he was in the garden? I don't know. Like it was, was he, did he sneak into the garden? Okay. God obviously wasn't deceived, but did he try to covertly go into the garden, deceive Adam and Eve, and then as a result of God's judgment on him, try to gain followers in heaven? Or was it, as most people traditionally understand it, he fell from heaven, then he was in Eden. I think that's probably the right one. 
Uh, but there's not really a big reason to nitpick about it. Whether or not he was cast out of heaven after that grand war that first happened, uh, because there was a war in heaven and he was cast out and a third of the angels followed him. Revelation 12 makes that clear, as we'll see. So whether that happened before he tempted Adam and Eve or after, I don't know if there's enough data to be sure about that. It doesn't honestly matter as much. The important thing we need to know, though, is that he was not a sinner before Adam and Eve's creation. Okay, there's this idea that that Satan rebelled eons before the creation of man. And that view just doesn't have any support in scripture. When God looked upon creation at the end of the week, he said, it is very what? Good. Good. Okay. And what did he make on those days? It's in his um, Exodus 20. He made everything that is in heaven and that is in earth. Mm -hmm. So we know he made the angels in that week. And by the end of the week, he could say, very good. Nothing's flawed. Nothing's wrong. So Satan didn't rebel eons before Adam and Eve showed up. Okay, so take away from your minds any, you know, gap theory or ruin reconstruction view or pre-Adamites or anything like that because we just don't have any support in scripture for it. Um, but in verse 16, it says, By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Notice there. This is, I will future tense. Mm -hmm. It hasn't happened yet. And that explains why in the book of Job, he's able to come before God's throne. Now, I do firmly believe that there was a war in heaven in, you know, what we would call primeval times, meaning back in the day around the time of Adam and Eve's temptation. Okay. After the creation week, Satan, I do believe rebelled against God. He did try to exalt himself, take the throne, and he was cast down. Ezekiel 14 tells us that. When he was cast down, he took a third of the angels with him, but he still has access to heaven. Now, how much access does he have? I doubt that all demons are able to just stroll into heaven. I think that since the devil is the leader, I think that God grants him temporary access as we see in the book of Job. And I think he can come before God. And I think he can state his case by accusing believers in Jesus. But he doesn't spend a lot of time there. He doesn't vacation there. It seems that it's something that he does only at the uh, the permission of God. Most of the time, where is he? Well, according to Peter, he's here on earth. He's the God of what world? Not the world above, the world below. And he's seeking whom he may devour. So this means that while he does have access to the second heaven, outer space, and he does have access to the third heaven, it's only temporary. And Ezekiel here promises that one day he will be cast down from even the second heaven, even the stones of fire. He will not even have access to those. And that won't happen until the tribulation. And we'll talk about this next time because we're out of time. But Revelation 12 says that Satan will be cast down halfway through the tribulation after a second war. He's going to try one more time and there's going to be war in heaven again. And he's going to be cast down this time. He will not only be barred access from the third heaven, but he'll be restricted to earth as well. And so right now his fall is only in what you would call the first phase. He doesn't have full access to heaven. He's only able to visit every now and then he spends most of his time on earth, but he's going to ascend to the third heaven in the tribulation period, apparently for one final hurrah. And he's going to fail. Jesus isn't even going to have to lift a finger. The Archangel Michael is going to take care of him along with the armies of heaven. 
And those two-thirds of faithful angels are going to cast the devil down. He won't even be able to access the heavens. This is important, too, because if the devil is able to access the heavens, it could explain uh, some of the UFO phenomenon uh, that has to do with, uh, you know, seeing these spacecraft that uh, are able to navigate, you know, the night sky. If he, if he does have access to the heavens above, it shouldn't really surprise us if something like this would happen to deceive people, especially in the end times, uh, the days of Noah, where we can expect an outpouring of more deception, just like in the days of Noah, where uh, we find that happening in Genesis 6, where angels were doing lots of mischievous things. But anyways, we'll talk more about Revelation 12 and how that's key. Because in, in my opinion, that's probably the most key chapter in the New Testament about who the devil is, you know, his falls. Um, and then after that, we will get to Matthew 17 and talk about demon possession and spiritual warfare. So thank you so much for listening. And hopefully you'll come back and listen to part two. Good night.